Yep, that's it. Okay. Wait a minute. Let me make sure that this is working. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. Okay, I think it's probably, is this working here? Let's see if it works then. Okay, there, that goes. Okay. He's probably going to tell us it's live. Go ahead. Psalm 119, Aleph. Oxhead, strong, power, leader. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his way. They have laid down, you have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I was considered when I considered all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utter utterly forsake me. Do not utterly forsake me. Okay, well I found out that everything is working properly. So he just got uh, YouTube and then Facebook came on. So we're a couple minutes late today. Apologies about that. Something happened with the system. But Sergio says we're good. Um, and then we have uh, one prayer request. Actually, there are a couple others. But for the life of me, I did not once again write them down. Uh, Mark and Becky, they we prayed for them on Sunday. They've got uh, a, a virus or something that's been just going on and on and on with them. And uh, so we'll, I'm, I did not hear from her today. So I'm assuming they're still not feeling well. But uh, we have... Um, Darla Doyle emailed me just before I left the house today, and she has stage four pancreatic cancer, and she's asking for prayers there. And uh, apologies, anybody else that emailed me, I had a really busy day, so I uh, I didn't write anything else down. But the Lord knows the uh, situation of folks, and uh, so we'll go ahead and just go to the Lord in prayer really quickly about that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come to you in prayer for Darla with her pancreatic cancer and uh, the others that uh, have emailed over the past few days and the ones we mentioned last week as well. Um, oh yes, Tony out in Washington is having some surgery and we want to lift him up in prayer as well. And uh, he's, uh, I think it's on 21 July if I remember that. So uh, Lord, we just lift these people and any others that uh, we have, that I have failingly forgotten to remember to write down and uh, you know who they are and we would just lift them up right now and we certainly ask that you bless this time together and that uh, the time in your word would be appropriate it would be handled properly and that there wouldn't be anything that is contrary to what you would have us teach as uh, as believers in your word and that it would be faithfully uh, handled and we pray this that you will be glorified and we certainly pray it in Jesus name amen all right, here we go. A little, little off because of the uh, streaming problem, but we're only about five minutes late. So we'll go ahead and read uh, July 2, when should Christians rebel? That's a good question. In 1642, the Puritans of England thought that the time had come. Charles I had been king of England since 1625. In that year, he had married the daughter of King Henry IV of France, a fervent Roman Catholic. Charles, as head of the Church of England, supported the high church party within the church with its tendencies toward Roman Catholicism and sought to crush his Puritan opposition. His effort to force Puritans to conform strictly to the practices of the Anglican prayer book caused many to emigrate to America. Those who remained in England harbored a growing resentment against Charles. 
Earlier in 1637, Charles set up his own downfall by ineptly handling the Scottish church, having declared himself the head of the Church of Scotland. Charles imposed a book of prayer on the Scottish church that was more Roman Catholic than the one used by the Church of England. The Scots responded by signing the National Covenant in 1638, which made the Scottish church officially Presbyterian. The following year, they revolted against Charles, needing funds to fight the Scots in 1640, Charles was forced to convene Parliament for the first time in 11 years to raise money. Unfortunately for Charles, most of the members of the House of Commons were Puritans. Charles' fatal blunder came in 1642 when he attempted to arrest five leaders of Parliament for treason. The result was civil war. Charles I had support of the Anglican clergy and the nobility, while Parliament had the support of the Puritans and the merchant class. The crucial battle came in 1644. Anybody know who it is? The person behind this, Oliver Cromwell. A godly Puritan became the leading general of the parliamentary army. In early summer, he began a siege of the royalist city of York. From his headquarters in Oxford, Charles I ordered his son, Prince Rupert, with his army of 20,000 to go to the relief of York. When Rupert arrived, the parliamentary army retreated a few miles southwest to Marston Moor. On July 2nd, 1644, Prince Rupert, not content to simply relieve York, attacked the parliamentary army as they were about to move south. Initially, the right wing of the parliament ar parliamentary army was routed by the royalists, but on the left, Cromwell's cavalry defeated the cavalry of Rupert and followed them in hot pursuit. When the rout was complete, they turned back to aid the parliamentarian infantry. The result was a total victory for Cromwell. The king lost his army and the queen escaped to France. The Puritans' attitude in the Civil War can be sensed in a letter that Cromwell wrote three days after the battle to the father of a soldier who had died at Marston Moor. Dear Sir, it is our duty to sympathize in all mercies and to praise the Lord together in chastisements or trials that so we may sorrow together. Truly England and the Church of God hath had a great favor from the Lord. In this great victory given unto us, such as the like never was seen since this war began, it had all the evidences of an absolute victory obtained by the Lord's blessing upon the godly party principally. We never charged, but we routed the enemy. The particulars I cannot relate now, but I believe of 20,000 the prince hath not 4,000 left. Give glory, all glory, to God. Sir, sir, God hath taken away your eldest son by a cannon shot. It broke his leg. We were necessitated to have it cut off, whereof he died. Sir, you know my own trials this way. His own son, Oliver, had been killed not long before. But the Lord supported me in this, that the Lord took him into the happiness we all pant and long for. There is your precious child full of glory, never to know sin or sorrow any more. The Lord be your strength, so praise your faithful and loving brother Oliver Cromwell. If you had lived at the time of the English Civil War, on which side do you think you might have been? Are there circumstances under which Christians have the right to overthrow their government? What would those circumstances be? Give to everyone what you owe them, pay your taxes and import duties, and give respect and honor to all to whom it is due, Romans 13, verse 7. So there you go. It's a question that everybody has to answer individually, but there's a point where you have to take a side in things. You can't just be neutral any longer. And so uh, 
It just that time comes and it comes quickly. It comes when you least expect it in life and it may be coming to our own land and our own shores in the near future. We'll have to wait and see. Oh, yes. I, would you get it for me? Because if I do, then the camera's going to go wonky. Um, we are in Galatians chapter 1, and we're starting in verse 13 today. Okay. Let me uh, back up to 11, just to warm everybody up. I want you to know, brothers, that, uh, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received Thank it by you. revelation from Jesus Christ. 13. For you have heard my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Okay, this is a little stronger here. For you have heard in my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. So says the same thing, just a little stronger in that. Um, let's see here. Comments on 113. This is a transitional verse between the thought of the source of Paul's reception of the gospel and that of a description concerning his conversion and subsequent learning and evangelistic efforts. In order to make that transition, he describes his life just prior to his conversion. He does this in several books. He gives, if you read all of the things that he says about himself, you get a real round view of who Paul was before he became a Christian. We'll, we'll probably not take that uh, now. He did a little bit of that in Corinthians. He'll do it in Ephesians, etc. But um, unless I've got it in my comments, I'm not going to go adding it in now. But uh, uh, anyway, this description is a reiteration of what those in Galatia already know. This is evident from the words, for you have heard. He is recalling his testimony to them in order to give them a standard of comparison between himself and the false apostles who had come in and infected their churches with the heresy of reinserting Judaism, meaning the law of Moses at that time, into the church. Okay, now, before I even go on, there's a difference. We I say Judaism here because that was the Jewish belief at the time. They were under the law of Moses, okay? And they're going back in and they're reinserting that. They're saying you need to be circumcised, you need to do this and that. Same thing that's in the book of Acts all leading up and then into chapter 15. Today, Judaism is much different than it was then, okay? What they have is they don't hardly even hold to the books of Moses at all or the Old Testament. I mean, they know that it's written, and but their actual standard is anybody, uh, the Talmud, that's right. And the Talmud is made up of the Mishnah and the Kamara, okay? And then you've got two Talmuds. You've got the Babylonian Talmud and you've got the one other, I don't even remember, but the, the uh, main Talmud is the Babylonian one. And it's, it's a giant book, and it's got the commentaries of all of these sages and stuff in the years past. And that is what codified Jewish life until today. And a lot of the stuff that people hold to, and this is almost criminal. I'm sorry to say this because, you know, I didn't know this when I was first becoming a Christian. And I would hear these things, and so I'd add them in because I assumed that these people that were teaching these things knew what they were talking about. But they will take commentaries from the Talmud, and they will insert them into their own theology today. In other words, the feasts of the Lord in the, in the Bible do not talk about many, many things. They're very clear, they're very precise, and all you need is the Bible to understand the feasts of the Lord and what they point to. But what people will do is they will take and they will add in things that the Jews have done over the years 
into the feasts of the Lord. It have nothing to do with the feasts of the Lord from the Bible. Okay, a perfect example of this is that today it's called, what is the uh, first day of the year called in Israel? Begins with Rosh and ends with, yeah, Rosh Hashanah, that's right. Okay, so that has nothing to do with the Bible. Nothing, okay? That is what they call it today. It's the head of the year. But if you are going to go by the feasts of the Lord, you're going to go by the redemptive calendar, which was instituted in, anybody know when that was? The creation calendar was, began in the month of uh, Tishri, the seventh month, and that was changed in the book of Exodus, chapter 13. He said, this shall be your first of months, okay? That is the month of Aviv, okay? So that is their redemptive calendar, all right? They did have a civil calendar, which they went with, but that's all extra. Don't get into that now. Just go by the redemptive calendar of the Feasts of the Lord. That is their first of the month, and so the first day of the seventh month is not Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year, okay? The first day of the seventh month is called Yom Teruah in the Bible, okay? You'd have to go back and watch the Feasts of the Lord sermons, and Yom Teruah does not mean the Day of Trumpets, so people add that in as well. The word teruah means to shout or to make an acclamation, and it can include trumpets, but it does, it does not mean trumpets. So people start building on their theology from things that are not scriptural. And pretty soon, the feasts of the Lord have no meaning at all by most teachers. They teach things that are completely pulled out of Judaism. They add in uh, like the marriage ceremony. And I don't mean to offend anybody. There's a lot of people that hold to these things right now that are listening. But the marriage ceremony of the Jewish people you know, they get married under the chuppah, and they have, uh, they stamp on the glass, and they do all of these things. That is Jewish tradition. That is not biblical in any way, shape, or form. It has nothing to do with the Bible, but all of a sudden, those things get added into the Feast of the Lord. So you've got Jewish family traditions, Jewish cultural traditions, which are added into the Bible that aren't in the Bible in any way, shape, or form, and so you have confused theology. So that is just as bad is what is being described right here. The people are going in and they're adding the law of Moses back into their theology and saying you need to adhere to the law of Moses, which is what Paul is going to write all of his book of Galatians about. Don't do this thing. But I want you to understand that until you know scripture, you're adding in all of these things to the feasts of the Lord damages your theology concerning the feasts of the Lord. The feasts of the Lord need to be taken from the Bible and any explanation which is found within the Bible and nowhere else. So when you start adding these things in, you're doing basically what Paul is doing here. You're taking things that don't belong in your current dispensation, in your current theology, and you're adding them in and you have convoluted theology, especially with the feasts of the Lord. So if you want to know the meaning of the feasts of the Lord, and I'm not trying to be self-promotional here, I don't get any money for views on YouTube, our videos are not monetized, but if you want to know the feasts of the Lord and how they are biblically aligned, watch the Feasts of the Lord sermons. There's only eight or ten of them. They're not that many. And go watch them, and you might add in the Leviticus 16 sermons, and you will understand from the Bible what they present. And if there's something that I mentioned that is not in the Bible, I will say this is something that's not in the Bible, and I'm doing it for a reason, so you understand. But don't add that kind of stuff into there, okay? That is damaging to theology. It's not helpful to theology. But this is what's going on, and I explain that because there's the old Judaism 
which I'm referring to is the Law of Moses. It had nothing to do with the Talmud and all of that crazy stuff that was added in later. Okay, nowadays all of that is also added in by rabbis and they make up stuff and then people go out and they cite it on TV shows as if it's biblical and it has nothing to do with it. These people, and I don't mean to diminish Israel, but these people have been under punishment for 2,000 years. The last thing in the world you want to do is listen to what they have developed over the last 2,000 years. It's They have rejected the Lord, they have rejected his word, and that's why they have been punished. They're back in the land, as we'll see in the sermon on Sunday. They're not all back in the land, but they are certainly not back to the Lord, okay? And that's a very important point to, uh, to think about. One of the things that I saw a couple years ago, and I was almost angry when I saw it, almost every prophecy update site on Facebook and etc. was citing, they were showing a a vision or a prophecy that this young Jewish boy was giving. He was bar mitzvah and he gave this, this prophecy about the Gog Magog war and how it's coming. The last person on this planet that God is going to speak through is a Jew that has not come to Jesus Christ. And yet it made every website, people were citing it and oh, look at this prophecy and listen to this. Why are you citing that? They have not come to the Lord. The Lord will not speak through them. And people don't seem to understand that, okay? What is important is to pay heed to the word of God. This is where we get our doctrine and nowhere else. Visions and stuff like that, you need to stay away from that kind of stuff because it is not the word of God. Anybody can have a vision. Anybody can have a dream. Anybody can have anything like that, and it does not mean that it is reality. It may seem as real to you as I had a dream a couple days ago that it was shockingly real. And the last thing I'm going to do is start telling friends about my vision that I had where the Lord told me this and that. I'm not going to do that. But it was it was shockingly real. Your mind thinks of things for whatever reason when you're asleep, and the best thing for you to do is to keep them to yourself. That's my my call on that. But here we go. We're going to now that you understand the difference between the two Judaisms. They infected the churches with the heresy of reinserting Judaism into the church. This is what's going on. In this case, the term Judaism, and here I'm going to explain it again, but is referring to the religious aspects of life among the Jewish people. He fell into that category, Paul did, and in that capacity, he says, I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. The term church in the Greek is in the singular. Thus, it shows a, dis a set distinction between the practice of Judaism without Christ and that of unity within the many churches who are in Christ and under his sole authority. Does everybody understand that? He's making a distinction. Those who are outside of Christ and those who are in Christ. And it's what I just told you about that Jewish boy that everybody was showing his video all over the place. He's a Jew. He has not come to Christ. And he is not a part of what God is doing until he comes to Christ. You know, this is another thing. I know that a lot of people like Kufi, which is the... Christians united uh, in fellowship with Israel or whatever, but that is a John Hagee ministry. John Hagee does not evangelize the Jews. He says they're saved through the Torah, through adherence to the law of Moses, okay? The last thing in the world I would do as a person, and I'm not kidding, I would never support Kufi. I may read their articles. I may, you know, if they have something interesting in an article about Israel or about archaeology that happens, that's great but they're not getting a nickel of my money because they refuse to evangelize Jews. They say you're saved through the Torah. That is the most damaging of all theology, and it is heretical. So do what you want with Kufi, but people really need to understand that there is a spiritual battle going on. This is 
Christ, and this is all else. And that's it. Those are the only two options in this planet. It doesn't matter if you have the name or the, the cultural title of Jew. If you are not in this one, in Christ, you're just as condemned as any person in, in Thailand that has never even heard of Jesus. Okay? This is the most important thing that we as human beings can do is to evangelize people, including and especially the Jew. Okay? So you just have to be very careful where you put your potatoes to be cooked, because if you put them in the wrong place, they're not going to be cooked properly. I know that was a bad analogy, but it's all that would come to mind at the time. Okay, again, these words are given to show the contrast between life under the old system and that under the new. You've got a complete distinction. Paul was under the old, and he felt he was acting in accord with the will of God at that time. Everybody does that. Okay, if a Jehovah's Witness, he was talking about the witnesses coming to his door. If a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, why do they do that? Because they believe that they're correct. Nobody's going to come knocking on your door that doesn't believe what they're telling you. Well, why would you do that? Right? I believe what I believe because it is what I believe. I'm not going to teach something that's contrary to that. You know, unless I'm a money grubber and I'm going to go on TV and just say anything for money. Or if I'm, you know, want fame or whatever, then I'm going to make up some really crazy stuff and post some crazy videos, and all of a sudden I'm going to get three million hits. It doesn't do any good, but that is some people's motivation. But if you believe what you believe, I'm a Muslim, and I really believe this, and I'm going to go into a shopping mall, and I'm going to pull the cord, right? Because they believe that. Paul believed what he was doing. He believed it was right. He had to have an epiphany. The Lord had to come to him and convert him, all right? Paul was under the old, and he felt he was acting in accord with the will of God at that time. Anytime you talk to a Jew that rejects Christianity, they do it because they feel they're right. That's why there's such a wall between them. They've been told for 2,000 years that Christians are the enemies of the Jews, when in fact Christians that want to convert them to Christ are their best friend in the world. But they don't see that. All they see is the murder of the past, and they see people like Hitler who claimed to be a Christian and was persecuting Jews for Jehovah's sake and whatever. Okay, so, however, the term I persecuted Paul is in the imperfect tense and should more appropriately be trans translated as I was persecuting. Paul was acting in a particular manner towards the church when his conduct was suddenly ended. Then a great change in his actions took place. But just before that change, it was his intent and his passion to utterly destroy the church. We got people in Israel right now that do that. That is their sole goal. They hate Christianity. They hate the church. And their sole goal is to destroy what is going on with Jews being converted to Christ. And as I say, don't hate them. Pray for them. Because when one of those people is converted, he will be the next Paul. We don't have it right now, but someday one of these people is going to realize the error of his ways. He's going to be converted. You need to pray for those people. You can be as angry at him as you want, you know, but still pray for him because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. And these people are going to go through a really rough ride when the tribulation period starts. Anyway, the reason for his words, Paul's, is to refute the Judaizers who were reinserting the law. He was one of them. He understands from that perspective what is going on, and he understands how detrimental this is to the theology which is being presented to the people in Galatia. The break had been made between the two. Christ and his church is on a new and separate path 
from that of the law. It is a complete break, too. It's not, well, you got one foot in one and one foot in the other. It is an absolute and complete break, which was the law was set aside through his completed work. Now, I'm going to make the case in Sunday's sermon that the law is still in effect for Israel. Well, every week I tell you in Hebrews uh, 7, 18, Hebrews 8, 13, Hebrews 10, 9, that the law is annulled, it is obsolete, and it is set aside. And I say that again and again and again. You say, well, how can that be that they're still under the law? It's because they have not come to Christ. So it is set aside. It is done. Nobody needs to go back under the law. But Israel made a covenant with the Lord. They agreed to it. It is the Lord's covenant, and they are bound to that covenant. Whether they're in the land or whether they're around the world in exile, they are bound to that covenant. The Lord has ensured that that covenant remains. He has been faithful to it, even though they've been unfaithful to it. And until they come to the end of that covenant, meaning Jesus Christ, they are bound by that covenant. They will be judged by that covenant. That when it says that the law is annulled in Christ, it means for those who are in Christ. It does not mean for that the law is gone completely. They are bound under that law. I'm talking about the Mosaic law. Until they come to Christ as a nation, individually they can come out. We've got Jews that we know in Israel that have come out and that are worshipers of Christ. They are no longer under the law of Moses. They are not obligated to any of the law of Moses. But Israel nationally is collectively bound to that law every single person of Israel. And until they come to Christ as a nation, they will continue to suffer the, the defeat of the devil, beating them up. And they're, as it says in Zechariah, two-thirds of those people are going to be extinguished in the near future. I don't know how near, but at some point. That is reality, and that is coming soon. Yes? So, question. Um, if uh, some other religion... They die. Yeah. They find themselves in front of the Lord. Right. But they they're not under the law of Moses. But won't they be judged by They the will be judged by God's standard, which is Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. We are not under the law. No person is under the law. But every person has to meet God's standard. Okay? God's standard is Christ. They have to meet the standard of perfection. Even though the Gentiles have never been under the law of Moses, ever ever i hope people will understand that we've never been under the law of moses it only applied to israel we are still judged by god's standard and god's standard is christ who was born under the law of moses he lived the law of moses and he died in fulfillment of the law of moses you can either be in christ or you can be apart from christ and that is the only two options is that yeah. okay good all right like and that'll be in sunday sermon i'm glad to ask that because when people hear it then they will understand what I'm saying, because sometimes you get so much information, you just kind of go dead. Uh, one of the ladies that's been attending recently last week asked me, uh, you know, I, I talked about the uh, how I do the Bible studies or the sermon studies every Monday. And she was so interested. She came and she said, well, I need help with that website. So we did it during the break on Sunday. And she said something. It just it just pleased me so much. She said, Throughout the week, I stop and I read your sermon because I don't get it all at once. Well, how can you? I mean, there's so much information. But most people will listen to a sermon, they'll, they'll get a little bit out of it, and that's it. And when she told me that she's actually going back and reading it, and she's studying the theology, I can't tell you what that meant to me. That made me so happy. I didn't tell her that, but I, I was just rejoicing that somebody wants to really know what we talked about. You know, I always tell people this, and it's true. You go to a sermon, you're going to bring home one or at most two things. 
That's it. That's all you're going to remember. And when a pastor gives a joke during the sermon, that's one of the things you will remember. And so you're not getting theology into your head. You're bringing home nothing. And if you listen to a life application sermon, then I'm not trying to diminish them. I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't listen to them because they're uplifting and they, they give you, you know, guidance about how to live your life. But you're not bringing anything of Scripture home. Nothing. Okay? And that's why very rarely do I give a joke. One or two weeks ago, I started with the, um, the uh, Coral Castle down in uh, Homestead, and I talked about that at the beginning of the sermon. I don't like to do that because people will remember about the Coral Castle, and they'll say, well, let's go there on vacation, and they won't remember anything else of the sermon. Okay? I don't like to do that, but it fit in with what we were talking about, and so I added it in. But to me, the most important thing for people to do is to bring home something that is biblical, that they will then apply in their lives. And that's why it's all just biblical information. I try not to add in a lot of extra stuff. But when she told me that, she's not getting one or two or three things. If she's reading it throughout the week, she's getting all of the information. She probably will remember that sermon better than I will because I got all this stuff to do in the next week where I have to download something. So it made my day. That, that literally made my, it obviously made my week because what day is it? It's uh, Thursday and I'm still thinking about it. Anyway, life application. Many people have amazing conversion experiences. They are heading down one path and suddenly their life makes a sudden turn towards Christ. The zeal and passion with which they follow this new path is one of the surest signs of the power of Christ to change the hardened heart. From time to time, go back and evaluate your own conversion. Return to the roots of that and look to re-energize the zeal you felt. Rekindle the fire once again and then press on in his power. And I'm glad to read that because from time to time, people will email me and they'll ask exactly, they'll say, you know, I just don't have the fire that I had when I first was a Christian, I think my, my faith is faltering or something. And I will tell them, I said, you know, nobody can stay on an emotional high forever. It is impossible. When you fall into love with a person, you are going to fall out of love with that person to some extent. The emotional high will never last. Some people will say, oh, that's not true. I've been in love with my wife the same all these years. I guarantee you that the first two or three dates were way higher than they remember. They were, you just, you can't maintain a high in anything, okay? But you can go back and you can review that. And you can think, I had that passion and I just want to review it in my mind. Even if you can't get it back physically or mentally, you can at least think about it. And that's a good thing to do. But, you know, another thing that happens, and this is for people that feel like their faith is faltering or their walk isn't as strong, is that you, if you are one of those people that had a great conversion experience and then you started to go to church and your theology developed, well, what happens? Theology takes over emotion, naturally. That is the natural outcome of having theology is it takes over emotion. And that's why I tell people is that you should never let your emotions drive your theology, ever. But you should let your theology drive your emotions. And so when you have proper theology, you are going to express it more maturely as a Christian. And it's not going to be that emotional theology that you had when you first met the Lord. So you're going to be more stable in your walk. There's nothing wrong with that. You have developed, okay? Your heart has changed more towards the Lord, but in a less passionate manner. There's nothing wrong with that. You are now guided by principles that the Lord has put in his word. Well, what more do you need? What more do you need than the word of God? 
then when you're at church and you hear the music and it stirs your soul, well, that's intended to do that. It's intended to have you a fully developed Christian. Sound theology, not pinging off all of the walls and at the same time exulting in the Lord at certain times during the week. That is a well-rounded way of being, okay? But to just be all over the place like you were when you were first a Christian was really wonderful, but it wasn't really edifying of anything except maybe the people that saw the change in you. And they say, I want that too, okay? But you're not able to express your theology in any proper manner at that time. So it's important to remember that you are going to go through stages in your life of a Christian, just as you will in your life as a married person or in your life as a person at work or anywhere else, okay? You shouldn't feel bad about that. Okay, 114. But I can tell you that when I was watching the video. Yes. He was, oh, he was I'm glad you like, mentioned that. I'm going to bring it up right now. Go ahead and talk when, about it. When, when he was doing uh, Witnessing Christ on the Cross, and it was one other uh, uh, piece where uh, I, I was crying. I was too. It was falling in front of the. Uh, absolutely. Once again, I brought this up last week. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Jim watched it. I, I implored Jim to watch it because somebody sent it to the church and said, Have Jim watch it. Okay? And you heard him say it. This, this is his finest acting that he has ever done. My mother agreed. Jim agreed. This movie, and you can watch it right on YouTube. I, I implore you to watch this. You will never regret it. It's called Saint John in Exile. It's got comedy in there. It's got, you know, comedy when you need it. But it is one man that does all of the acting, and he plays, what, 10, 12 different parts, and he plays them completely different. You would never know that it was the same person speaking those parts. It is, and he does it with no break. He does it with no mm-hmm. cutting. It, okay, well, breaks, but not in the, the film itself. True. Yes. True. It is all one person doing all of the acting without any cutting at all. It was just as he did it. It is marvelous. And you will cry. If you don't cry, you need to get your uh, cry meter tuned up because it is so beautiful. Please watch this movie, and I will get this back to the person that sent it to me as quickly as possible. If somebody else in the church wants to watch it this week and has a DVD player, let me know, and I'll let you have it tonight. But make sure you get it back to me because it's not mine. Anyway, we're going to go on. 114. 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. Okay, well, that is word for word. Oh, no, this one said contemporaries. What did yours say? Uh, my age. Okay, my age, contemporary. Okay, other than that, it was just exactly. Okay, um, 114. Paul continues here with his qualifications of a true Jew to be fond over if that was appropriate to occur. Now, before I go on, I think I actually used that term in this Sunday sermon. It may be the sermon I'm doing next week because I've already started working on that too. But um, I, I use the term true Jew, okay? And when I do, I don't want anybody to start thinking, oh, Charlie's talking about Christians being true Jews. That will never be the case. I'm talking about Gentile Christians. That is not correct. We are Gentiles. Jews are Jews. There's a complete distinction between the two. This is the category mistake that that replacement theologians make from John Calvin and you know any replacement theologian they say we are the Israel of God that is completely incorrect Paul never once go back and watch all of the uh, Romans uh, uh, commentaries that we did the Romans Bible studies Paul never calls the Gentiles Israel ever we are grafted into the Commonwealth of Israel, we are never called Israel. We are never called Jews. Paul always makes a distinction, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile. He does say we are one in Christ, 
But when you say Jew and Gentile or one in Christ, it does what? It shows a distinction, Jew and Gentile. Okay, just like when he says male and female are one in Christ. And as I tell people, I can walk around the church and point at every person and I can pretty well guess this is a male and this is a female. Okay, there, that has not been deleted when you come into Christ. There are males and there are females. There are positions within the church for male for males and for females, okay? But Jew and Gentile, you are one in Christ. That means you have the same salvation. You have the same everything, status. same status, just like a bond servant and a master, okay? They're both in Christ. He's the master of the guy. He's the slave of this person, and yet they're both in Christ, and therefore they are on equal status in Christ, even if outside of the church he's still his master and he's still his slave, Okay, that's a part of theology that people need to understand. When I say true Jew, I'm not speaking about anybody but a Jew being a true Jew. Okay, so again, the reason for this line of thought is to show those in Galatia that just because someone possessed all of the qualities of a true Jew, it had no bearing on whether they were teaching the true gospel message or not. He will continue to show himself as the standard by which all other such Jews would be more than willing to gauge themselves if these things were which mattered, okay? A person can be a Jew and not be a true Jew, all right? We've got Jews all over Sarasota. I bet you we have out of those, we'll say there's a thousand Jews in Sarasota. I don't know. I'm just giving a number, all right? Out of them, if there are 25 saved believers in Jesus, there are 25 true Jews in Sarasota. That is it. Completed Jews. The rest of them are incomplete. They are not circumcised in the heart, and therefore they are not a part of the covenant of Christ. They're still Jews, but they are not the true Jews that Paul is referring to, okay? They're not the completed Jews. They're true Jews in the sense that they're Jews, but not beyond that. Okay, first he says, and I advanced in Judaism. This means the teachings of Judaism. It included more than the cultural aspects of that life, which any Jew would be aware of. Instead, it included the fullest knowledge of those things. Any Jew would know to do the Passover. Any Jew in the world today knows to do the Passover. But Paul knew the reasons behind the observance in the most detailed manner. They may have heard the story read once a year from Exodus, but they didn't understand all of the details from the law of Moses, the Passover and the sacrifices, and it's just something that they wouldn't have been interested in, okay? Paul knew the details why. He knew all of the substance behind it. He had thought through. He had been trained in it. He had been educated in it, okay? Any Jew would know to wear particular clothing, but Paul would understand why they did so. These and countless other precepts were the things he faithfully studied. He knew all of the traditions of the Jews. He knew all of the cultural aspects of being a Jew. He knew all of the spiritual and religious aspects of being a Jew. He was a person that understand Judaism, understood Judaism. Going on, he said that such knowledge was beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation. What that means is that he was trained as a Pharisee, okay? And all these other people were trained as Pharisees too. So they have the same knowledge and training he does, but he had gone beyond them. If you go to, we'll say a good school, not Harvard or Princeton anymore, um, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, okay? And so you're going to be trained in biblical Hebrew and Greek. Well, you might have somebody that learns biblical Hebrew and Greek, but he's not really good at it. 
and then you might have somebody that absolutely excels at it, right? You've got gradations of knowledge in biblical Hebrew and Greek or in, you know, homiletics or in whatever. Somebody happens to be better at, at that particular discipline than anybody else. Paul is saying, that was me. I was way ahead of everybody else in this particular thing, all right, beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation. He, along with many of the other students, were trained at the feet of, anybody know his? Gamaliel. That's right, Gamaliel, a great Jewish rabbi. And yet he excelled beyond them. He had a greater knowledge and a greater application of the knowledge than many of those who were his contemporaries, where they went to class and they did what Gamaliel said. Paul walked up after class and he said, I needed further instruction in this. Gamaliel, let's have lunch and I will buy. Oh, okay, Paul. Then you can, or Saul at the time, then I will give you more training, whatever, okay? This means those of his age and generation who set about to advance in Judaism. They're all trying to advance in Judaism, but Paul was way ahead of them. He bought lunch for Gamaliel or whatever else he did to learn. Maybe he studied all night. He had extra oil in his lamp, whatever. In, this, in his advancement, he was, as he says, more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He loved what he was studying. He loved it. The word for zealous here is zelotes. This word gives the ideal of boiling over with fervency. It comes from the word zelao, which refers to the sound of boiling. Okay, actually they would say zoop, zoop, zoop. That's the sound that they would get. Paul's fervency for his life as a strict and adherent Jew was the epitome of such fervency exceeding those around him as he strived to be the very best adherent possible. This included, as he says, the traditions of my fathers. These traditions are the things which Jesus rebuked the leaders of Israel for. Remember that? He says, you hold as tra your traditions above scripture. Okay. As a matter of fact, I was listening to that in the book of Mark when I was driving around today, is that Jesus was talking about that, the, the Korban, the Bible says that you are to honor your mother and your father, right? But Jesus excoriated them because he said, well, they had this thing. And I talked about it during that particular sermon in Leviticus, so you have to go back and watch it. But basically what they were doing is they were saying that here a father has an inheritance. He gives it to the son. And he says, this is for the son. Now, the son is supposed to use that money and to take care of his parents. But what does he do? He says, I'm devoting this as a gift to God, okay? And so as long as it's devoted as a gift of God, it can't be used to take care of the parents. So the parents, he's not honoring his parents as he should. And then the priests and the Levites have made a deal with him. So they get a percentage of it, and then eventually it goes back to him. So he gets all of his inheritance without taking care of his parents. The parents end up destitute after having raised that schmuck, okay? And so he wasn't honoring his parents. And this is what they had done. They had set aside the 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 word of God to form their own traditions to get around the word of God by saying it was applying to the word of God because technically it did fit what the word said. Okay, I've got something that's Korban, but it didn't actually in intent, in the heart, do what it was supposed to do. And if the heart doesn't match the action, then it ain't no good. Okay, we'll see that will be up in uh, Deuteronomy 5 in a couple more sermons. It's a repeat of Exodus chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments. That's correct. Deuteronomy 5 repeats the Ten Commandments. There are some changes in it that we'll go through. But 
The last commandment of the law is what? There's 10 of them. What's the last one? Do, yes, coveting. Do not covet, okay? If I covet, who's going to know? Is anybody here going to know? No. Not, nobody. And yet the Lord says, do not covet, which implies that the Lord knows everything. Because coveting's only in my head. It's not anywhere else. It's nowhere else. And yet, he says, do not covet, and it is a law. If he gave a law, then he can make sure that you are obeying or not obeying that law. Okay? That's kind of a scary thought. Think that through. Coveting is only between you, yourself, and you, and yet the Lord knows it. It is one of the commandments. Okay? There's, there's a term that we have used in society for coveted pride. Yeah. It's like... Why? Why? I know. Why you, want that? you know, one of the ones that I hear, and I hear this a lot, and if anybody has said this to me, I'm not trying to get down on you. I'm just saying that it's one of the things you probably shouldn't say. And I never rebuke somebody when they say it, but I hear it all the time. I covet your prayers. Okay? That's like, you're not supposed to covet, okay, even in the New Testament. And I understand, I would appreciate your prayers, this and that, but I never use the term, I covet your prayers, because it's sending a wrong uh, what is it, linguistic message, because if you can covet prayers, you can covet other things. I'm not saying that it's wrong in the intent, but when you take a word and you use it in that way, it stretches it, okay? And the word is now no longer meaning what it's supposed to mean. I think my mom is making a face right now, so she may have said that to people. I don't know. But if she ever said it to me, I don't remember because my mom is perfect in my eyes. Okay, so we're going to go on. Um, What's that? Traditions. Traditions. What about? Go ahead. Okay. Uh, he said in the 11 of First Corinthians the, about to hold firmly to the traditions yes. that I delivered to you. So these are Christian traditions, not Judaism. That's correct. Do you want us to go back and you want me to get the notes and read you that again? Because I don't remember all I said yeah, there. Yeah. That's why I like to read from my own notes. But that's true. He does use the term traditions. Yeah. and. That has nothing to do with the law at all. It has to do with instruction to the people there. Okay. okay. That is correct. I don't remember all I said there, and I don't want to say the wrong thing, okay. but he does use that terminology in 1 Corinthians. What was it, 11? 11. All right. If I remember that, I will make a note of that, and we'll talk about it next week because it's important. Now, I'm glad you brought that up. I just don't want to say the wrong thing right now. Um, but... I remember that's a very good point that was made in that, and it's something we need to be careful with. Once again, we don't want to get into semantics and say, well, he said here and here, and there's a contradiction in the Bible. No, there's a reason why Paul said what he said. Anyway, whatever laws were set down by the religious elite, Paul was the first to agree to them and strictly adhere to them. He wanted and always to be thought of as the cream of this legalistic society. If those at Galatia wanted someone from Jewish circles to emulate Man, I'm telling you what, Paul would be the cat's meow of the one to follow after. That's the point he is making to the Galatians. I am the one that you want, okay? If you want those guys, I'm way ahead of them. This is what you want, follow my old ways. But he's going to tell them, don't follow my old ways. I'm going to give you a logical defense why your thinking is completely messed up. These notes of his past life are intended to get those in Galatia to see the futility of doing anything but that as well. Life application, here it is, Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Not the law of Moses, not on traditions, not on let's fix our eyes on Jesus and everything will fall into its proper place. Everything, okay? 115. 
But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased. Okay, it's a little bit different here. When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Okay, a little bit different, but it's same intent from birth, from the mother's womb. Okay, uh, 115. This verse falls into the biblical doctrine of... Sovereignty. Well, sovereignty, but also predestination. You are correct. Sovereign, God is sovereign, and so he is predestined. Okay, let's read it again so you understand what's going on, because Calvinists will come up with one idea of sovereignty and predestination, and it is incorrect, and then we come to the correct model, and we have to understand why this is the way it is. Once again, um, 115, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, meaning before I was born, go back to Jeremiah chapter 1, I knew you before you, you know, the, all of the things that it says there, we'll read that before we go on, separating me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Um, we'll go back to Jeremiah chapter 1 because it just came to mind and it's a relevant uh, passage here. Psalm 139 too. What is that? Yes, I was knit in my mother's womb. That's right. So uh, exactly right. Okay, we've got to go back. Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, I think it's chapter 1. It may not be. If it's not, I'm not going to. Okay, um, let's see here. Where? Um, I, oh yeah, here it is. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Okay, and then he goes on and he makes the same excuses that Moses made. Then I said, oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I'm a youth. And oh, I, my lips are uncircumcised and blah, blah, blah. And it goes on and on in the Bible. We're whining about the Lord that made the decision in the first place as if he doesn't know what he's doing. And I've done that. I'm not complaining against them. I'm placing myself in their place. We all do this. I'm not capable, Lord. I can't carry this burden. Well, it's what I've given you. Trust me on this, okay? The Lord said to me, do not say I'm a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. You do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. If he formed him, okay, if he did that, then he obviously had the whole thing planned out in advance. You know, we don't think clearly when we're given an assignment and we think, oh, I can't do this. Well, He's put you there. This is time and space that you're occupying. He did it for a reason. Was it okay. Jeremiah or Ezekiel? He said, I made your head harder than earth. Oh, yeah, harder than Flint. Yeah. That's right. That's Ezekiel. That's exactly right. Okay, Ezekiel was able to do that. Okay, um, let's see here. Predestination. God has a set plan which will come about and which cannot be thwarted. In the case of the calling of Paul, it is one which God knew would be the most effective calling, both in the individual selected and in the time period in which he his selection was made. So let's stop right there. Is everybody here born? Are we all alive? Okay, then God, if he predestined Paul and he predestined Moses and he predestined who would be in the genealogy of Jesus, he knows exactly when you would be born and everything that you would do. And he's got you where, he, I say it at the end of every single sermon, don't I? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. And then I amend it for each book of the Bible. But the fact is, this is true. If you look at your circumstances, and I know sometimes you got pain, sometimes you got you know anxiety, you've got trouble with your wife. The Lord has put you there and he is there with you. Just think of these people that wrote these things, and it's no different. I'll tell you what happened today. Talk about things that happened. we got a minute. 
I went out, uh, I got the mango for sale sign out, you know, because we got so many mangoes and I didn't bring any today because they were all sold. But Hitako will have more ready for Sunday. If you want mangoes, come in and we'll have them. But I'm out selling the mangoes and there were uh, some in the thing. And I thought, I'm not going to go pick more today because I'll pick them fresh tomorrow. I've got the whole day, whereas today I only got a half a day. But I picked some mangoes. And I'm doing all of the church work and everything. And finally, I put out, the, I didn't pick mangoes, I put them out. But anyway, then I finally put out the sign by the road. And one guy came by, some a guy from Mexico, and we got him some mangoes. And then uh, uh, I thought, it's just so slow. Nobody's coming by. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to throw the net. Okay. And I had a guy had come by the, the house to do something. And I had said, well, I'm going to get out there real soon. I'm going to get the uh, net out because it's the right time to fish. Okay. He said, how do you know? I said, well, the tide is right. He, he, he was kind of interested in that. So anyway, he took off and I got a couple things done and I took the net and I threw it one time right at the shore. You know, sometimes there's a, well, I can't say what type of fish because you're not supposed to catch them with a, a net. But anyway, <laughs> um, sometimes there's one, they sleep right there. So I, I will throw it there first and then I'll go out on the dock and I'll throw it around. But I threw it right there. I had so many fish. There were so many fish in that net. I couldn't pull it in. I'm going to tell you, there were, they were big. They were the biggest mullet I've ever seen in my life. Since we were this big and they fished out the bay, they were giant. All of them, two of them were normal size. The rest of them were absolutely huge. Okay. I couldn't bring them in. All right. And despite all of the fish, yet the net did not break. Good stuff. Okay. Just like the... Uh, you should have called me. Oh, listen. I brought those babies in. Finally, I had to drag them up on the shore to bring them in. And I'm thinking the whole time, I can't do this. You know, and that's the lesson that the Lord had me catch all of those fish. Now, there's a reason why that happened. Okay. And I thought, I'm not going to send them back into the water because they're all good fish and we'll find something to do with them. I know Hitako will take some to work tomorrow for her friends, but there's a lot of fish here. Okay. And they're just thick meat and everything. Well, what happened? As soon as I started taking off all of the scales, I got them all done and I've got all the fish laid out, ready to fillet them. Here comes a person. And I said, I'm down here, you know. And so they walked down instead of by the house to get the mangoes. And I, uh, and I'm sorry, I walked up there first and I said, listen, I got to get back down there. I got some fish, but what do you want? She says, well, I want some mangoes. And I always ask, where are you from? Because they all have accents. And some say Russia, some pay, say uh, Hungary, Hungary, some say Thailand. Some people say as three times this week from Cuba. I said, oh, I said, you're the third Cuban family to come this week. And she says, because Cubans love mangoes. And so I, I uh, said, well, I, I, I've got to get down and cut some fish. She said, can I buy some fish from you? And I said, no, but I'll give you some fish. And so we walked down there and she took four giant fish and her family were all drooling over these things. And, uh, but God is sovereign. Here's what happened. I looked at her mask and, you know, I try not to look at people, you know, I don't want them to think I'm gross. I'm, you know, I've got a hat on and I'm got these gross clothes and I don't want them to think I'm like ogling them. But I looked at her and it says Jesus right here. And I said, oh, I said, I love that face mask. And she says, well, we're Christians. And she told me about how her son met Christ. He prayed for the family for years. And finally, they've all met Christ. They all attend church here. And then they, we started talking about Israel and Japan because one of the daughters wanted to go to Japan. So I was able to tell them, you see, God orchestrates everything. So the daughter's got information about Japan if she needs it now. They've got information about Israel because they were going to go to Israel and they didn't go. And I said, I got the perfect people for you to watch on YouTube. And 
oh, we can't wait. They're going to start watching the Sergio and Rhoda videos and blah, blah, blah. Everything works out as it should. And one of the reasons why is because you throw out a net and you get so many fish that you can't bring them in. Okay. And that wasn't intended. All I wanted was one fish for my wife, but now we've got fish for people that will take them home and enjoy them. We got some for Hidako's friends at work and we got some for Hidako. Best day of my life. Wait till they get to the road to Jericho. The road, I told them to watch that one first. I told them to watch that one first. So there you go. We'll see if, uh, if they do, I'm sure they'll email and let me know because I gave them my business card. But um, okay, um, uh, here it is. Uh, go back. It is the one which God, okay, yes, Paul begins with, but when it pleased God. This actually ties together with the words of the next verse, which say, to reveal his son in me. So you kind of have to skip around. That's the same thing with 3 John right now. I'm typing that commentary, and you have to kind of refer back and forth. But um, to reveal his son in me. There was a specific time in Paul's life for his calling. However, through his calling came, though his, though his calling came at a later point in life, the preparation for that call came at a much earlier time. Paul says that God separated me from my mother's womb. As I said, everything happens according to the will of the Lord. Everything. Even if it's bad, it happened for a reason, okay? We have to look for his hand in it. That's all. Excuse me. This is a common theme for those selected by God for his redemptive purposes. Samson's calling was made before his conception, as was Samuel, which is implied in the account, and John the Baptist as well. Isaiah's words concerning the coming Messiah show the exact same thing as true. Let me take you to Isaiah chapter 49, and it says there, chapter 49, verse 1. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. Okay, long before Christ was ever conceived, thousands of years before, God had a plan set. Even before he said the first word, you know, let there be light. Before he did that, Christ was already in his mind. Okay, so the Bible confirms that. It happened with all of these people. If it's true with them, be assured it's true with you. Okay, God doesn't just pick some humans and say, I've got a plan for them and I don't have a plan for any others. That would be Calvinism. You can go to another church on that one. But that is not the case. God has a plan for every single person. All right, further, Jeremiah shows this was the case with him. I just read it, so I'm not going to read it again. In the case of Jeremiah and Paul, they didn't actually receive their commission until much later. And yet their designated paths were set from the womb. In Paul's specific case, it was after years of learning under Gamaliel and after countless persecutions of Christians, among other things. Now think of this. I don't know if I'm going to say this in my commentary, but it's on my mind. I'm going to say it right now. Every single thing that Paul did made him the perfect apostle for what he did. Okay? Everybody got that? Everything. He was schooled in the law. We can call him a lawyer. He was able to use that in the book of Acts to keep himself out of the fire and to get the gospel expanded even to kings and even to countries, okay? Paul was a persecutor of the church. Because he was a persecutor of the church, that was made him able to empathize with churches that were persecuted. I don't care what aspect you read of Paul's life before his conversion, think on that aspect of his life and you will find something that God has used woven into his word about it. You will always find it, 
okay? He will tell you things that happened to him, and then you can say, well, that relates to me, okay? You're a part of the redemptive plan. In other words, these things which seem contrary to being a servant of the gospel message were actually, oh, here it is, being used as a part of his ability to convey that message. He could not well refute the Judaizers to those in Galatia without having the credentials that he possessed. Right now, there is somebody in Israel that needs to be evangelized. I'm not going to say who it is or what the circumstances is, circumstances are, but I would not be able to talk to this person the way that my friend Sergio could talk to him, okay? He's a Jew. He has the experience of understanding Judaism. He has all of the needed information to be able to sit down and say, listen, I can give you information. And yet, at the same time, Sergio emails me about certain verses that he might need in order to make that happen or certain experiences that I have that he can use to explain to this person. So even though I'm not a Jew and I could never speak to this person because I'm not, he is able to use my experience along with his experience to make a rounded experience for this person to understand. I don't know if it's going to work or not. We just have to pray about it. We have to hope that it works. Sergio and I and Rhoda prayed about it last night. But it's something that every single aspect of our lives can be used in that purpose of bringing this person hopefully to Christ. And if it doesn't happen, then it wasn't a part of whatever the Lord knew would not happen. Like, he knew that that person wouldn't choose Christ. He learned to do that. Yep. Will be played again sometime. That, that, again. That's right. That's you absolutely right. funny about Paul. Paul is, um, uh, he did not willingly come. No. No, he didn't. Such a Jew. Yeah, absolutely. Such a Jew. That's absolutely right. But Paul, as he said, I was uh, one born out of, uh, out of due time. That's right. Okay. He was not a normal birth in Christ. He had to literally be almost forced into it. But he does say, he does say in the book of Acts, he could have been disobedient to the calling. He specifically says that, proving even there that he could have chosen to not follow Christ. Hence, once again, predestination is not what Calvinism says in any way, shape, or form. It is abundantly clear in Scripture that they are wrong on that doctrine, okay? But once you're tra trained in a theology, it doesn't matter how much evidence you're given. You will 99.9% .9 of the time shut it down because it doesn't fit with your worldview, and that's a bad place to be in. Okay, anyway, um, he could not well refute the Judaizers to those in Galatia without having the credentials that he possessed. And so, even what we would consider as evil can be used for a good purpose by God. This same idea also permeates the Bible. What happened to Joseph was evil, and yet God used it for good. As a matter of fact, he explicitly says that. Thus, we can see that God has a plan which is far greater than any temporary woe or misstep that we make, which happens on our part, okay? It's way bigger than that. We don't need to worry if we have somehow uh, got off the plan and God can no longer be trusted or anything like that. Everything we have done, he already knows that it's going to happen, and so there you go. Paul was separated from the womb, and at the perfect moment, he was called through his grace. That's his words. Every part of Paul's life was leading up to that magnificent moment on the road to Damascus where he was shown grace. And that moment led to each subsequent moment of his life. What does it say about Noah? Whole world is wicked, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord.
there's a time where grace comes and you have to be able to seize it. Noah was already righteous in his generations. The Lord knew that. Paul, one, needed grace, and then two, he had to accept that grace. He specifically says, I was not disobedient to the call. The marvelous plan of God was working out exactly as intended in order to bring the world to a fuller understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. Without Paul, we would have a huge dent in our ability to understand what is going because it's all from Jewish. And there's another thing about Paul that the other Jews, the apostles did not have. Where did they meet Jesus? In person in Israel, right? They were all Israelites. They all lived in Israel. Paul wasn't. He was from Tarsus of Cilicia, right? Okay. And because he was from there, he had an understanding of the Gentile world. He had an understanding of the Greek language. He had an understanding of the, uh, probably the native dialect of Tarsus. He had an understanding certainly of Latin because he was a Roman citizen. Okay. So he probably spoke that as well. When he says, I spoke in, or speak in more tongues than you all, it's because he spoke in more languages, known languages than all of the others, okay? That is Paul. He has this great wealth of knowledge. He lived among the Gentiles. He has everything that is necessary for him to be the apostle to the Gentiles while still being a complete Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, etc. He was the perfect pick by God. It, it's astonishing when you think about what God did by choosing Paul. Okay, I'll read that again. The marvelous plan of God was working out exactly as intended in order to bring the world to a fuller understanding of the work of Christ. The reason for Paul's use of this verse is to show that it was by grace alone that he was saved. If this is so, then the pattern follows through with each person, each other person who is saved. There is no work involved in the salvation of any person except the finished work of Christ, a work which is of grace alone through grace alone. Okay? However, this then asks us to consider, if Paul has to tell them this because they were falling back under the works of the law, guess what? Free will must be a part of the process. Everybody see the logic in that? I'll read it again. If Paul has to tell these believers in Christ that this what he's telling them now, that they are being drawn by false teachers, okay? They're falling back under the works of the law, then free will must be a part of the process, even if God is fully aware of it. God knows it's going to happen. He knows if you're going to choose him. He knows if you're not going to choose him. He knows every single thing in advance, and yet he has given us free will for salvation, for keeping our walk with Christ or walking away from him, or simply forgetting about our walk with him, as it says in 2 Peter 1.9. There's somebody tried to trick me a, a while ago with a post on Facebook. Well, what if a person does this, okay? Like it was the worst possible thing on the planet that he could possibly do, and certainly he can't be saved. Well, the answer is 2 Peter 1.9. There are people that have completely forgotten they were saved, and if they've forgotten they were saved, then they can do that, and they can do that, and they can do that, and they can do anything else. I don't care what step they take. God did not forget, because if God will break his covenant with Israel, he will break his covenant with you. And he has never broken his covenant with Israel, and he will never break his covenant with Amen. Israel, which means that he will never break his covenant with you. You may walk away just like Israel has for 2,000 years if you can live that long, and God will never reject who you are in Christ, okay? People need to get their theology straight. If you believe you can lose your salvation, then it was never of grace by faith, ever. 
okay? There would be no need for Paul to even write these words that he is writing right now unless there was the possibility that a different outcome would result if a different choice were made. There would be no point in him writing. This will become perfectly evident when a situation concerning Peter is introduced into Paul's words in chapter 2. Okay? It is clearly and perfectly evident that even though God knows all things that will occur in all people forever, all people forever, he does not make our choices for us. Thus, predestination has a dual nature. God knows the choices man will make, but the free will of man is a part of the equation. It is a complicated issue. I understand that, but it is both reasonable and self-evident in the pages of the Bible. The Bible never teaches regeneration in order to believe, okay? If you don't understand that, I know I've said it four million times, I'll say it again. People that hold to Calvinism say that you are regenerated in order to believe, you then believe, and you are saved. And what that means is that the uh, being born again in John chapter 3 is not salvation, okay? To them, to these people, being born again is God regenerating them so that they can believe in Christ, and then they do believe in Christ, and then they're saved, okay? That is about as convoluted as any theology could ever get. But they have to come to that conclusion because if they don't, then all the rest of their theology is incorrect. When you are born again, you are born again. It is by the Spirit. And when you are born by the Spirit, you are sealed with the Spirit. When you believe, it says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it is a gift of God, it is done, and you will never lose it. Okay, life application. Everything that occurs is known to God before it happens. Isaiah 49, 1 showed us that. The birth of Samuel, even before he was conceived, you're going to have a child, etc. Everything. God knows every single thing before it happens. There's nothing God doesn't know. Though that, though that doesn't take away any pain that we may feel, it should give us a great comfort to know that if we are in Christ, all things are heading to a very good end. Living through the present may be difficult, but it is only a way station on the highway to glory. Okay? We're on a highway we're just at a way station once we come to Christ, and we will be through with it very soon. We'll be back on the highway, and someday we're going to be translated to glory, and I can't wait for it. I just can't wait. But anyway, we'll just let the Lord deal with it in his own timing. One sixteen Was pleased, 16, to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among, among the Gentiles. I did not consult any man. Okay, way different. This one said, in me instead of to me, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Okay, wow. yeah, big difference. The words, to reveal his son in me, refer to the calling of Paul through God's grace. It was this calling that was intended to accomplish exactly that. Do we have time? Yes, we have 15 minutes. Paul had fought against Christ by fighting against his church. But God intended to reveal him to Paul in an act of grace and with the intent that he might preach among the Gentiles. He was uniquely, uniquely qualified to accomplish this. His attitude, demeanor, learning of scripture, language abilities, and so much more made him the logical and even perfect choice to become the apostle to the Gentiles. 
The other apostles could not grasp that this message would go out to the Gentile world. They had no idea that that was coming. Zero. It doesn't mean that it's a different gospel, as hyperdispensationalists heretically say. It means that they had no idea even how to evangelize a Gentile. Same gospel, two different approaches. All right. They couldn't even imagine it. Passages such as Acts 11:18 and the general idea which brought about the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 show that there was continued resistance to the truth of the gospel as it was understood by Paul. Peter will also show this resistance in a big way in chapter 2 of Galatians. But Paul, let me read what I, I cited Acts 11:18, and I want to know why I cited that. So let me go there really quickly before we go on to the next paragraph. And... 11 verse 18 says, oh, when they heard these things, they became silent. They had no idea that the Gentiles would receive Christ. And they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. That is when Peter was told to go down and talk to, uh, what's his name, uh, Julius of the, uh, Cornelius. Cornelius, thank you, of the Italian regiment. I said Julius, it's Cornelius. Anyway, of the Italian regiment. And he went down and they were converted. And Peter had to walk into an unclean person's house in order to do it. So he got excoriated for that until he explained to him what happened. And then they were astonished. Oh, my gosh, the Gentiles are, can be saved, too. So there you go. That's why I cited that one. Anyway, before I go on with one more thing is that, um, um, hang on, did I just read, what did I just read you? Uh, Acts 11, 18, where did I read that? Okay, got it. Um, uh, one of the points I was going to make about the fishing today, which I didn't, and I completely forgot because I was talking about uh, different aspects of it, is when I came up, the lady who told me that she was saved and her daughter was saved and blah, 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 but she had two nieces with her. And so I stopped right there before I went on. I said, now, I know that this woman knows Jesus, and I know that the daughter does, but what about you two? And I said, I, I, I said what's going to happen to you if you die? And they said, well, I'm going to go to heaven. And I said, Why? And her answer was, because I know God. And I so said, Muslims know God too, don't they? Right? Buddhists know God. What God are you talking about? And they stopped and they said, well, I've never, never really thought that over before. They did know Jesus, but they never, they didn't equate anything other than Jesus as God. And so I said, you need to be clear when you talk to people about Jesus. Because when you say God, everybody's got a notion of God, right? The old Greeks had Titan and Zeus and all these other gods. That's not going to get you to heaven, okay? And so I said, what is it about Jesus that you believe is going to get you to heaven over that? And their answer was, oh, because I believe that he died for me. And I said, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, I don't know. I've never thought about it. And I said, well, he had to die for a reason. What was it? I'm trying to get them to process why they believe and so that they can then explain it to somebody else. And finally, they, un they understood that they're talking about sin. Oh, well, if you have sin, then what does that mean? Oh, I need a Savior. Jesus is my Savior. And I said, but that's half the gospel. What's the other half? He came out of the grave. He was resurrected. Why did Paul say that? I don't know. And I said, because it's to prove that he is God. I said, there are people that believe that Jesus died as their Savior, but they don't believe he's God, and they're not saved. Oh, and they, they knew these things, but they had never unpackaged it. That's why when you talk to people and they say, God Try to be more specific. Get them to unpackage what's in their head so that they can be more effective in their telling other people. Okay, this is that was what I was wanting to tell you. Okay, so I'm going to finish up. Peter will also show this resistance in chapter 2 of Galatians. 
But Paul, well-trained in the Hebrew scriptures, was able to pull out the pertinent verses and passages from those same scriptures to see that how God would work in the Gentiles was how he had actually worked all along. All of his writings methodically show the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, and they meticulously rely on the very Hebrew scriptures which he had been so well-trained in. Okay. For this reason, he says, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. That's what I was looking for, and that's why I was thinking, what's the matter with that? Rather than relying on the doctrines of men, he determined to immediately turn away from such fallible resources and devote himself further to comprehending the great body of Scripture, which he was already well-trained in. He would do it without presupposition or the weakened, fallible interpretation of man. Instead, he would do it with the leading of the Holy Spirit who gave the scriptures to man in the first place. The term flesh and blood is used four times in the New Testament, and each time it is connected to a hint of either human weakness or ignorance. In contrast to this is the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. A good example is found in Matthew 16, 17. We got just enough time. I'm going to go there and then we'll be uh, done with the comment in just a moment. Matthew 16, verse 17. One second, 25, Matthew 16, 20, all right, 18, 17, 16. Okay, Jesus said, and Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. As he has been doing thus far, he is showing the supremacy of the gospel he preached over the fallible and misguided path those in Galatia had chosen to follow by listening to the false apostles. Scripture can be twisted by any fallible human to produce, produce the most wretched of heresies. But the Holy Spirit will reveal the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are willing to put aside biases, presuppositions, and lies in order to hold fast to what is properly revealed concerning Christ Jesus. Life application. Paul's words are clear and concise, but they are often twisted by those who have a perverse agenda. Peter mentions exactly this in 2 Peter 3, verses 14 through 16, which we don't have time to read. Never trust the interpretation of man without checking and rechecking what you have been taught. Okay, so I apologize for that miss there. I turned one page when I should have turned two, and so I was off there, maybe for the, uh, the uh, video. Tomorrow, Sergio can show me how to cut that out, and then nobody except the people that suffered through it that are watching online will have to put up with that. But anyway, um, uh, wonderful word from Paul today. Galatians is such a treasure. It is such, it's my favorite book, and I'm so excited about it. I'm just, thank you, Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the treasures which are included in it, recorded in it, and which come from the hand of these men over the many, many centuries until the coming of Christ, and then more came to explain what his coming meant. And we're so grateful for that, and we just thank you for this beautiful word. We pray for everybody here and anybody online that's listening or anybody that listens in the future that they will be blessed, that they will pursue your word, to read it every day, and to not get misdirected by people that come in and and add things to the word or twist the word in order to come to conclusions which are incorrect. May it be so and may it be to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Oh. The what? Her signature amen. Oh, yes, her signature amen. Okay, we're going to go to break. All right.